0: This is the Mutual Audio Network.
1: The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance Sonic Echo.
2: Welcome back to Sonic Echo, where we explore the best in old-time radio. As we're continuing our excursions into the Wild West, this time around, I'm your eccentric but lovable town drunk, Lothar Tuppen, and with me are my amigos, Canadian fur trapper Jack Ward.
1: yee How you doing there, partner?
2: And also with us is professional card-sharp and traveling snake oil salesman, Jeffrey Billard. How you doing, Jeff?
3: Well, Lothar, I'm finding life rather dull and dreaming of exotic places and Well, wishing I was somewhere else. I need an escape. You gotta get you
1: some gold up here in the mountain. Up in the clone (laughs) You gotta do my gold dance right now.
2: (laughs) Somebody give him some more whiskey. He doesn't have enough. (laughs) Oh, I have just the thing for you,
3: Jack.
1: Oh, no. Just 25
3: cents a bottle. Two bits will get you this snake oil here that will cure (laughs) everything that's wrong with you. Good old
2: coffin varnish. That's my it. favorite. That's, it. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It'll st- it'll strip your linoleum and give you a high. Um, <laughs> that's right. So t- this week we are, uh, or this month, the show, whatever time period this is coming out on, we are <laughs> exploring a show from the uh, anthology series Escape. But we're continuing our Western theme, and this is Wild Jack Rhett, which came out on December seventeenth of nineteen fifty, and. It was based on a short story by the same name by Ernest Haycox. And uh, Ernest Haycox was an amazing short story writer. He wrote something like 300, let's see. He wrote 300 short stories and two dozen novels before he died at age 51. Wow. Fans of his work included Gertrude Stein and Ernest Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway. And the latter one actually said, I read the Saturday Evening Post whenever it has a serial by Ernest Haycox. So this is a guy who (laughs) did a lot of stuff. Uh, his sh- short story "Stage to Lordsburg" was made into the movie "Stagecoach" by John Ford and wow. Hatt- with John Wayne in it. And the novel uh, "Troubleshooter" was serialized um, as a when it first came out, but it was the basis for the movie "Union Pacific" by Cecil B. DeMille and starring Barbara Stanwyck. So wow. this is a guy who had a lot of stuff uh, adapted. And the other thing that's really interesting about this particular episode is that the person who adapted it for uh, for audio and the director was John Meston and Norman Macdonald, respectively, the same people who created Gunsmoke. Oh. And John Meston, who, um, you know, again, did the script, he wrote 183 Gunsmoke episodes and 196 of the TV show. So 183 of the radio show and 196 of the TV show. And he also worked oh, on Little House on fan the Prairie. a of
1: Westerns is what you're saying.
2: Maybe just a little. Yeah, yeah just a little. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll go into a little bit more, but uh, John Denner is, is going to be playing uh, Jack Rhett, and people are going to experience what an amazing actor he is. He was someone who was going to, um, he was actually being asked to be Marshall Dillon before, um, before Conrad. And he turned, really? it, he turned it down because he didn't want to be typecast as a Western actor. Wow. Wow. And he started off as an um, animator for Disney Studios and worked on Fantasia and Bambi.
1: <laughs>
3: so
2: this is a crazy guy he was also uh the character paladin and have gun will travel
1: oh i love that yeah, yeah so that's one of my favorites so we've
2: got him playing the the main uh titular character of jack red and we've got parley bear who uh is going to be our narrator who uh jack why don't you tell us a, or jeff i'm sorry why don't you tell us a little bit about parley bear
3: sure parley bear uh we talked about last week he plays chester on Gunsmoke, uh as well as uh was in Andy Griffith's show, so and did tons and tons of old time radio. Great, great character actor.
1: And Gene, uh, Jean- who did the whistling, by the way, of the of that show. The <laughs> that I
2: don't,
1: I don't know. Was that, was that Andy Griffith or not? So I don't know. I, I always that- wondered. Sorry, it was a little off. That would top. be good to find out.
2: So basically, I just wanted to talk a little bit about that before we start the show, because when we start the show, we're going to not only address. What is going on in the show like we normally do on the on our episodes, but also maybe a little bit more about what makes Westerns Westerns and explore the genre in in more depth. So before we get into the actual show, is there anything else about um, maybe some of the sort of uh, main players or anything we want to get out of the way so that people can sort of be prepared for the show or anything about maybe what the show is talking about that people should have in mind before listening to sort of have the right frame of context?
1: I'm great to listen.
2: Yeah, I think we'll just go right into it and uh, talk about it all afterwards. Sounds good. All righty. Well, then, everybody, get ready to enjoy the episode from Escape, Wild
4: Jack Rat. You, finding life rather dull, dreaming again of exotic places, wishing you were somewhere else, we offer you Escape. <laughs>
5: Escape with us now to the Old West and the unusual story of a merciless professional killer as Ernest Haycox tells it in Wild Jack Rhett.
6: Red Mesa. a little town springing out of the hot, dry prairie beside the Chisholm Trail. A saloon, a hotel, two general stores, and a tiny church where the decent citizenry might pray for salvation while a wilder element, trail driver and teamster and buffalo hunter, restlessly searched out friend and enemy along the dusty main street. A small hill rose on the western edge of Red Mesa, plagued with a rash of graves, some marked and cared for, others sinking and forgotten. Man that is born of woman, hath but a short time to live, and is full of misery. He cometh up and is cut down like a flower. He flyeth as it were a shadow. While we're praying, a couple of you boys start throwing some dirt on the sheriff. O oh Lord, with whom do live the spirits of them that be dead and in whom the souls of them. And that same evening, a committee of the leading citizens of Red Mesa gathered together at Mayor Wayne's home to decide upon a new
7: sheriff. All right, gentlemen, sit down and let's get this settled. Gentlemen, to make this town a decent place for our women, folk, and children, we've got to have a sheriff, Todd Mallon, and his kind can't kill. We need the toughest gunfighter
4: available, and I want to propose... Uh, Just a minute, Mayor Wayne. Let me speak. All right. Go ahead, boy, Allen. I don't think we should get all upset just because we lost another sheriff. Mm-hmm. Jim Speed worked out fine for Red Mesa. All we need is another sheriff just about like him.
7: I expected that, Bo Helen. Uh, all you look out for is to keep that saloon of yours full of anybody who'll buy whiskey and gamble. Yeah, yeah. I still propose we reform this town by sending
4: for a man some of you may have heard of. Jack Ritt. All right, uh, gentlemen. I do want my saloon full. And full of the only men who'll bring any money at all into Red Mesa. Cow punchers coming up the Chisholm Trail with Texas cattle. Thirsty men on the prod from a long drive. But you give them Jack Red instead of a little fun, and this town will go broke. We'll chance that, boy, Helen.
7: We'll chance that. What
0: about Matt Travener? What's he got to say? Mm -hmm. I have nothing to say, gentlemen. As U.S. Deputy Marshal for the district, my job is strictly outside Red Mesa. You run your town any way you like. I'll handle the surrounding territory. Know anything about Jack Red, Travener? Just by reputation, professional town tamer, and I've heard he's the most cold-blooded killer ever drew a gun.
4: Travener's right. We can't afford a man like that here. Let's put it to a vote, gentlemen. Yeah, yeah. All in favor of sending for
7: Jack Rett, raise their right hand. Yeah, all right. Five to one. The matter is settled, gentlemen. Good night. Yeah, good night. I right, Wayne. You'll wait and see, Mary Travener.
0: If you don't mind, Mayor.
7: Of course. Sit down. She'll be out in a
0: minute.
7: Well, boy, Ellen was pretty mad. But after Jack Redd is here for a while, at least there'll be less gunfighting.
0: Be less anyway if Todd Mellon were out of the way. sets a bad example. He's a hard man to catch.
7: Well, if all you can, Travnor, There's just too much territory around here for Mallon and his gang to lose themselves in. He'll have to be taken by a town officer. And I think Rhett is the man to do it, if Mallon comes to town again. He'll come, Mayor. The word gets
0: out that Rhett is sheriff here. Mallon will have to face him or lose his reputation with his own men. Good evening,
4: Father. Hello, Matt. Good
0: evening. Hello, darling.
4: Well, Matt Travener,
1: aren't you going to kiss me?
0: (laughs) Well... Of course, sure.
7: (laughs) Mary, what a shameless wench you are.
1: (laughs) Oh,
4: Father, you're old-fashioned. After all, we're engaged.
7: Your mother, God rest her soul, didn't behave like that when we were engaged.
4: The war changed things, Father. Uh,
7: I know, but not for the better. (laughs) Well, I'm off to bed. Don't stay up too late now. Good night. Good Good night, night, Father.
4: You look worried,
1: Matt. Do I? Tell me about it.
7: Well, it's just that they're
0: sending for a new sheriff, legal killer named Rhett. He has quite a reputation, and there'll always be men to challenge it.
7: That means more
4: gunfighting. Is that it?
0: I'm afraid so. It's a bloody way to peace, Mary.
4: I know. (laughs) Let's not worry about it now. Come on. I'll pick some coffee for us.
6: Three weeks later, Wild Jack Rett rode into Red Mesa. He was 38 and at the peak of his reputation. He stood well over six feet, better than 200 pounds of plain sinew. Tawny blonde hair grew long in the frontier style, and his features, fair and tinted like a girl's, were boldly aquiline. He was a picturesque man, till one looked at his eyes, which were large and pale blue, and had the disconcerting trick of remaining too steadily on people. There was to be seen in him the suggestion of inhumanity. Well. He sent word to the committee that he'd
4: meet him at the mayor's office that evening. It's eight o'clock now. Where is he? He's in town, and that's bad enough. Dear sport, boy, Helen, we took a fair vote on Rep. Yeah, sure. Here he comes now. Oh.
0: My name is Jack Rhett. I have your offer.
7: I'm Peter Wayne, mayor of Red Mesa. Do you accept it?
0: Depends on what you want. Tell me.
7: Rhett, this is a difficult town. The Chisholm Trail lies just across the river, and we get most of our money from the riders passing through Texas cattle. Now we want them to have a decent time for their money, but we don't like a lot of gunplay and killing.
0: I have always been accustomed to complete authority, Mayor.
7: I presume to know my job and I won't have interference. That's agreed, Rhett. By the way, the last sheriff had a rule that riders leave their hardware at his office. He had trouble enforcing it.
0: A poor rule. Let them pack their guns.
7: That gives the wild ones a fair chance at you.
0: I never give a man a fair chance at me. Is that all, gentlemen? (laughs)
6: Bo Helen's saloon was the usual deadfall, with a huge bar along one side of the room and gaming tables toward the rear. Next morning, Bo Helen stood tapping the mahogany of the bar with his fingertips, staring thoughtfully at nothing. Good morning, Bo Helen.
4: It's noon, Samus.
6: Huh? Oh, sure. Hey, draw me a beer, Mike. Yeah.
0: Where's the new sheriff, Bo Helen?
4: Over there at the corner table. Came in just before you did. Uh Uh-huh.
0: Barkeep, bring me a cigar, a glass of rye.
4: Yeah, now he's going to clean and reload his six guns, one at a time. I got it, he is. How'd you know? It's an old gunman's trick, to impress the citizens.
6: But there's no one here, except you and me.
4: Then it's to impress me.
6: I I don't think... Uh, well, uh, goodbye, Bo Helen, uh, Mike.
0: <clears throat> You've got something to say to me, Bo Helen?
4: Yes, yes, I have. Uh, you're smart, Red. I recognize that. But your record for killing is too severe, and my business depends on an open town. Now, the reform element got you, and know, I'll go along for now. But just remember one thing. I can break you, Rhett, any time. I was waiting for that, Bo Ellen. Well, and I guess we understand each other. Hello? Oh, any luck, Matt? Just a morning's ride. Uh, Matt, uh, here's Jack Rhett. Rhett, this is Mac our U.S. Deputy Marshal for the district.
0: Glad to know you, Rhett. You're young. Don't be misled. Rhett, your job is in town, mine is everything outside. So I'll either back you up here in Red Mesa or leave you strictly alone. I'll handle Red Mason. All right. One more thing. I want Todd Mallon. If he comes to town again, he'll have to be taken. Will you do that or shall I? What is he? Outlaw. His main line is plain robbery. Now I want him for killing Jim Speed. Let me handle Mallon. Why? Killing's my trade. Man doesn't live with enough animal instinct to get me. Maybe. But killing you would build a man's reputation considerable. Just so? Well, no. good luck, Red. There was
6: peace for a full week in Red Mesa. And then on Saturday night, Matt Travner's prediction came true. Jack Rett was at his customary post just opposite Bow Helen saloon in a chair on the porch of the Chinook Hotel, obscured by the shadows and watching the crowd, his cold, pale eyes half-concealed by cigar smoke. Trouble found him thus.
4: Evening, Sheriff. Good evening, ma'am. Keeping an eye on the boys, huh? Oh, shoot! Not... Yeah! Where's the sweat that used to be in Abilene? Where's he hiding? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where's that great man, Wild Jack Red? Bring him out!
0: <laughs> Hello, cowboy. I
4: don't- a killing for one sheriff. Three men. I don't like it. Forget it, friend. Have a drink and forget it. You're Bo Helen, ain't you? That's right. Come on now, have one on the house. Now, Mike, fix him up. I can pay for my liquor. You never gave him a chance. What kind
6: of sheriff you got stands in a shadow and kills one man and then jumps 50 feet from his gun flash and shoots down two more? Those boys never had a chance at him.
4: Yeah, uh, just drink a drink, cowboy.
6: That was the most merciless killing I ever seen. Yeah. He's a butcher. I wish I'd gunned him the- up. up! Right,
4: right, Those kids better be still now.
0: This is my game. They were fools to play it. Never buck a man who's spent his life learning to kill, son. Get out of town. Get out now. Red? What if I... Don't try it, son. Don't let your anger destroy you. Drift. Go on. Drift.
6: Blast your town. I can hold my thirst another 200 miles up the trail. Come on, boys. We'll send word back to Texas to go around, Red Mason. Let it dry to power. Yeah, sure
0: we will.
4: It won't do, Rhett.
0: It'll do, Bo Allen. Barkeep! Bring me a glass of rye. On the house.
6: Rhett stood with his back to the bar, holding his drink and a thin black cigar carefully in one hand. He stood there for about ten minutes. Then trouble came again.
5: Todd Mallon, he's riding in with four men. Close the games. Open up the back doors.
4: Well, Jack Wreck, now let's see you shoot down Todd Mallon and four men from the shadows. Good night, Bo Helen.
5: Escape under the direction of Norman McDonald returns in just a moment. Sorry, but if you think school teachers have it easy, you've got another thing coming. Just ask our Miss Brooks, as played by Eve Arden, on most of these same CBS stations this evening. And now back to Escape. <laughs>
6: When word came to Bo Helen's saloon that Todd Mallon was riding into Red Mesa with four men Jack Rett simply walked out, crossed the street to his office sat down and waited Twenty minutes later, Todd Mallon had arrived and departed Not a shot fired Then Jack Rett went quietly to bed But early Sunday morning, he was back in his office
0: Come in Morning, Red. Well, Travner? There's talk, Rhett. I expect that. Now, Rhett, you told me you'd handle Mallon if he came to town. Yes, Travner. Well, they say Mallon rode into town last night with four men. Rode right up to this office, got down, came inside. That you and he stood here with this desk between you talking. And then a few minutes later, Mallon left and rode out of town. I play the game my own way, Travner. And I don't want interference from anybody. People are saying maybe you and Mallon made a deal of some kind. But, uh, well, now, somebody's breaking the Sabbath. You know who it could be, Travener? No, I don't. Well, oh, it's a rifle. Sounds like one of those seven shot Spencers. Well, then it's old Hack Crow. Who is he? An old trapper. Comes to town every few months, sells his furs, gets drunk, goes a little crazy. Jim Speed always laid him away in jail to sober.
5: Yeah, I'll take a look.
0: You better stop him, Red. He's only got two shots left. That'll satisfy him. I doubt if he'll reload. And if he notices us and decides to shoot, then I'll have to kill him. Hey, who's that coming out of Bo You old bay, a gambler. He's a fool. Now he's getting this horse. You're gonna stop him, Rhett? Oh. Nope. Let him go. Rhett, The town is your territory and I won't interfere. But why did you refuse a fair shot at Hack Crow? Ewald Bay is dead. Which is the more useful citizen, Travner? Crow or Bay? The west is full of gamblers.
6: There was considerable talk that day in Red Mesa over Jack Ratt's aloof and cruel calm in condoning a shooting that had occurred under his very eyes and within reach of his formidable guns. Then, mid-afternoon, a rider came up from the prairie and reported finding old hack crow dead in a cooling. Dry-gulched and robbed. Mayor Wayne heard about it and went to Bo
4: Helen's saloon to hear more. Ah. <laughs> Well, good evening, Mayor. Hello, Bo Helen. Card of Brandy. And what do you think of your great Jack Rhett now, Mayor? Uh, it looks bad. Now, look, Mayor, everyone knew Hack Crow carried his profits in his pocket. always did that. So Rhett allowed him to leave, and Todd Mallon and his men were waiting for him in the coolie. Just simple as that. You have no proof of that, Bo Helen. No? And why didn't Red take Mallon when he rode in here last night? Because they made a business arrangement, that's why. Well, it doesn't look good, but... Shh! There's Rhett now. Hmm.
0: Barkeep! Glass of rye.
4: I don't want to talk to him yet. I'm leaving. Good night, boy, Helen. Good night, man. Uh, Mike, uh, give me that rye. I'll take it over to the sheriff myself.
1: I uh, Here's
4: your drink, Sheriff. Mind if I sit down? Game never changes, Bo Helen. I know what you're going to say. I warned you I could break your Rhett.
0: It's an old story to me. Every town's got one insider who plays along with the outlaws. I knew you to be that one here when I first saw you. Running a saloon, you'd know when a cattle buyer was riding out of town carrying a specie. When the overland stage was loaded with gold, there was a quarrel over the split of profits between you and Mallon. And you fell apart. That's always the way. Very shrewd, right? It's an old story, Bo
4: Helen. I know it by heart. Very shrewd. But you can't play the same game. All sheriffs
0: are supposed to be crooked.
4: You and Mallon had an agreeable little chat last night. Did he make you a good offer, right? Maybe I should
0: accept his offer, bo just to keep you two split.
4: Uh, maybe I should do that. Rhett, I've seen sheriffs come and go. It's a chancy trade. Sheriffs die. They all die.
0: It's only a question of time. <laughs> You're a hard one, Jack Red. You might make your peace with Mallon. It'd have to be that way, otherwise you'll have little chance of getting rid of me, Bo-Helen. It may be that way. I wouldn't be surprised. I always expect the worst of men, and I'm seldom disappointed.
6: It was turning dark as Jack Rat left Bo Helen's Saloon. Crossing the street, he walked into his office, but continued on out through the back door. A few minutes later, he stood in the gathering shadows opposite the O.K. Stable and watched Bo Helen ride out and drift into the prairie to the south. He knew now what to expect. It would happen soon, perhaps tomorrow. He returned to his office and slept the night there.
0: Come in. Well, Good morning, Rhett. I want you to meet Mary Wayne. Miss Wayne, very proud.
4: I, I, I wanted to know you.
0: Hmm. To meet him, Mary, not to know him. Rhett lives in a closed world. Huh. See that I have no friends. Oh, oh,
4: we're to be married on Thursday, Mister Rhett. I, I should like you to be there.
0: I'd be most happy. Thank you. Now, Mary, would you wait outside? I've got some business to discuss with the sheriff.
7: Of course, Matt. But don't be long. Goodbye, Mr. Red.
0: Bye, Miss Wayne. Brett, this afternoon I'm leaving to find Todd Mallon. You had your chance, but you let him go. Wait, Travner. Wait, wait. I've tried patience, Brett, and I'm a poor hand at it. Travner, you have a fine girl. If it's not presuming, let me congratulate you, uh, compliment her. Thank you. Was that all? Um, I'll take care of Malin. Give me a little time. It's my job. Red, uh, I want to believe you. No man wearing a star should believe anybody. It's a weakness, haven't I told you? Blessed if I quite understand you, Red. Then understand this. Every man has his time. When it comes, he knows it. There's no turning back. Nothing makes any difference then except to stand up to the finish and go out in decent style. And yet you're the man never believes and gives another man a break. Don't try to understand me. You want help with Mellon? I have no faith in help. Come Coming, Mary. Wait, uh, Travener. Hmm? I'll suggest this much. Take one man. Ride due north to where the cattle trail crosses Tempest Creek. Be there tonight. Understand? Red, I... I'd hate to oppose you. If you did, you'd lose. I've been 15 years at this, Travner. Which is five years beyond average luck.
6: That evening, Jack Red took up his post on the porch of the Chinook Hotel. Dressed in his best... A hard white shirt, a blood-red Windsor tie, and a suit of black broadcloth swelling around the big uncompromising shoulders. He sat there calm behind the smoke of his cigar, waiting.
0: Uh,
6: full moon tonight, Sheriff.
0: That's right.
6: Uh, no offense, mind you.
0: <coughs> Good evening, Rat. Hello, Mayor Wayne. Uh, Mayor, have you seen Travener? He rode north this afternoon.
7: He'll be back tomorrow, he said. Good. Where's the sheriff?
0: Here I am. Red. listen, I just come up South Creek and Todd Mallon and six men were only a quarter mile behind me, heading into town. All right, friend. Take cover. Yeah, yeah, sure.
6: Rhett sure. stood up and moved into the shadow at the end of the hotel porch. Across the street, Bo appeared in the full glow of the doorway of his saloon.
4: Come out in the dark and meet your friends, Jack Rhett. What are you afraid of? It's only Malin riding in to see you.
0: Thieves fall out. But the urge for profits brings them together again.
4: You should have known it, Rhett.
0: Nothing surprises me.
4: Oh, oh, there you are, Red. Surprised to find you exposing your great reputation out there in the middle of the street.
0: Every man has his time. You want to try it, Bo Hillen? Or will you wait for help?
4: I'll wait.
6: The arriving horses came up into the moonlit street and halted at the corner of the saloon. Bo Helen's hand lifted toward the group, and at that order the horsemen spread out until they were flank to flank all across the street. Todd Mallon advanced from the line and stopped, square and alert above the saddle. Jack Rett stood alone in the middle of the street, his eyes flashing a hard fury. Then he dropped his cigar and ground it beneath the boot. It was a final gesture
0: are you, Mallon? Goodbye, gentlemen.
6: Next day, Red Mesa buried some more men out on the hill and talked of Jack Rhett, who was more of a mystery to them now than when living,
0: to all of them but one. Matt Travner. Nobody knows a killer's world, Mary. Wasn't any room in Jack Rhett for much pity. But he sent me away to save me from what he knew was coming. I think that was a kindness, although I had no fear.
1: It was a fine thing for him to do, Matt.
4: But they say he stood in the middle of the street to face them all in the moonlight. Why? It wasn't his style
0: long as he was sure of himself, he never gave anybody an even chance, Mary. But killers live and die by instinct, and somewheres along the evening he got the warning. After that was just a matter of pride. He killed Mallon and Bo Helen before he died, standing up and in good style. And that's sort of a a greatness, isn't it?
5: Under the direction of Norman MacDonald, Escape has brought you Wild Jack Rett by Ernest Haycox, especially adapted for radio by John Meston. Jack Rett was played by John Daner, with Larry Dobkin as Matt and Lou Krugman as Bo Helen. Parley Bear was the narrator. Featured in the cast were Junius Matthews, Russell Simpson, Gene Bates, Paul Dubov, and Sam Edwards. The special music for Escape was composed and conducted by Ivan Dittmars. <laughs>
4: Next week, we escape with the story of two small boys who discover the most fabulous Christmas ever dreamed of as Anthony Ellis tells it in his delightful tale, The Cave.
5: Stay tuned now for Make Believe Town, which follows immediately on most of these same CBS stations. Roy Rowan speaking for CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
2: And we're back. So, what'd you guys think?
3: Well, I loved it. I I thought it was very. Um, I mean, it was archetypal, but it also was was different, and I, I liked it for the fact that it was very it was very cerebral. There was a lot of stuff that was happening in there about peace and anger and and heroism in a certain kind of way, and, and I just loved it. Plus, it was entertaining, uh, you know, as well. So,
2: yeah, it's just a damn good show. Mm. Jack, what about you?
1: Yeah, I, I felt exactly the same way. And it it's kind of unusual too when you start talking about like um uh, like a professional killer and stuff like that in the old West. I I found it interesting in the way that they they set it up. Let's just put it that way. It's an unusual story, but it's not um it's unusual even for escape. Because escape wasn't used to using an awful lot of westerns at the time, so mm-hmm. to go in and find um, um, and basically what I don't know would this have been considered an iconic short story by this time? Would most people have like read it, or would this be an, an introduction for a lot of people, even to you know the author himself?
2: I don't know. The original story, the original story was published in 1933, and he did mm-hmm. a lot of stuff up until I think his. No, it was collected in 1950. Um, I guess he was pretty famous. I mean, he was in big magazines. So right. um, I, I assume that he was known, but I don't know exactly how famous or popular or how much of a trend he was or anything.
1: Yeah. So I love, I love escape episodes regardless. I mm-hmm. love that they are there to help you escape. The fact that they actually you know, really encompassed a, a Western tale like this just did my heart
2: Yeah, it seems like there's only a handful of escape westerns, but um, at least that I could find sort of collected under that category. But, um, yeah, you're absolutely right.
3: And, you know, we talk a lot about narration, and uh, I did like the narration in this. Yes. Because it felt like a story, like you said, Lothar. I hadn't thought of that until you mentioned it. But I also loved in the beginning, I loved the way they handled letting the audience know that the sheriff had been killed when mm-hmm. the minister is is praying yep and then he he kind of interjects all right boys throw some dirt on the uh, sheriff you know on the coffin and i just thought that was really ingenious when it's right in the beginning and it hooked me right in because i said oh this is
2: good these these people are thinking when they're writing this script um, there's a number of uh things that are in that opening s- uh, section that you just mentioned that i think set up not only the historical context but also the mythic context and that's what i thought was brilliant about what was probably in ernest haycox's original story and also Mm -hmm. continued on in the script is that you know we do have that sort of opening where um you know it's plagued by a rash of graves and then we go right into the funeral so we have this town that's growing up amidst death and one of the things that's very um historical about it that i thought was interesting but it ties in with the mythic is that you know this is taking place on the chisholm trail In the fictional town of Red Mesa, or at least a Red Mesa that I can't find, the only existing Red Mesa seems to be in Arizona, which is not on the Chisholm Trail, which went between basically Texas and uh, Kansas City, Kansas to, um, you know, as as the cattle train. And this all happened, the Chisholm Trail came about after Civil War. So we Mm -hmm. have a couple references to this being post-Civil War. So it's that later period of the West. Things are starting to change. We've already got the reunification. We get this returned back to a number of times so it sets that historical setting of post-civil war in a specific area but then also the um uh the priest's sermon you know men who is born of woman who have the short time Mm -hmm. to live and blah 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 that well that comes from job 14 from the bible used as a um, funeral prayer didn't happen until originally. Um, well, it started happening in 1662 when the Anglican Church created the Book of Common Prayer. This is because they okay. didn't have any. They didn't want to use the Requiem Mass from from, from Catholicism and have mm. all the Latin and everything. So they made their own book of like common prayers, and some of the things were then utilized for for funerals in a different way than what the Roman Catholics were doing. And in 1789, that was added to another book of common prayer. So in 1789, it was official as one of the uh, funeral things, and then it also ties in with the, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And it spread oh, out okay. from Anglicanism to other forms of Protestantism. And that's another sort of historical thing about the Old West is that there really wasn't a lot of Catholics. There was a whole lot of Protestants and a whole lot of Puritans. Mm. So huh. so we, you know, see very, for, from that historical point of view, we see whoever this particular minister is, he's some sort of, um, you know, Protestant sect doing it in this way not a huge thing, but just a minor little thing. But then it also evokes all of the aspects of Job and the aspects of what is your, what is your fate? What is your, um, what is your tie in with rebirth and death coming after? And all of those various aspects that go on with a lot of the verses in Job. So we've already got a mythic and historical confluence at the beginning of the story that sort of sets the pace in an almost surreal sort of way.
1: And that, that, that sort of aspect of, of, the crap that you go through uh, in Job, that Job, you know, that, that is Protestantism, right? This, this, you know, even to a certain amount, of, like the, the Calvinism, the idea of, you know, good works going through the most difficult times and stuff like that. And, and, and pushing yourself through it regardless, which, and again, you can see that in the, in the Western aesthetic. Exactly. I was going to say that could be, that could oh, be used yes.
2: as a metaphor for the Western, oh. you know, expansion in and of itself. From a mythic point Absolutely. of view, at least
1: Be- before we escape the narration section, can we just talk a little bit about the second second person narration that they use? Not just in this episode, you know, the whole you're standing in a moonlit street of Western mm-hmm. cowtown, yeah. alone and friendless. But the idea that they do in, in other, you know, in other escape episodes, taking the the, the the whole feel of escape is we're removing you from where you are and placing you there. Yep. You, the listener, yep. are there. Yep. You're not just a third person going in. You are there. What do you think about that as a, as a technique? Because I don't see that being used a lot in very many other continuous series.
2: I love it. I, I don't think uh, the second person is used enough. Um, mm-hmm. I use it a lot in oral storytelling to try and connect with the audience and, and, make, that, and make, it, make them realize that I am talking directly to them. Uh, I think mm-hmm. it can be used very effectively. Um, you can even switch between them in, in various medias, from from first to third to second to and all over. Um, I would love to see right. people use the second person a little bit more, as long as it's not overdone, because uh, it could easily become like, "Yeah, all we're eating is chocolate cake for for every single meal, and um, it's a little rich for our blood." Sure.
1: <laughs> I remember as a kid, I uh, and sorry, I didn't want to jump all over you, Jeff, but I remember I was as a kid, I I loved the pick your own path adventure books. And oh, one yeah, of my favorite great. ones were Grail Quest books. I think they're called. And they were King Arthur sort of set up. And at uh, the very beginning of every book was Merlin talking to you, the reader, and telling you that he's casting a spell on you through the pages of this book. <laughs> That's cool. And he's captivating <laughs> your mind. And you would be <clears throat> inhabiting this this small little character, an Arthurian court known as Pip and you would have these things and he explain all this stuff and he's like don't worry even if you die in the pages of this book i will bring you back to life and stuff like that <laughs> it is just really interesting wow. way of of grabbing somebody's attention and i and they, like you said i don't think they do second person well enough and i always found uh myself that i i love that about escape because it it made me stop every time and listen to that introduction more
3: more clearly
1: how did you feel jeff
3: well one thing i would say Jack is is for our audiences, how would you define second person narrator as opposed to third person narrator?
1: Okay, so in school, uh, and maybe I Lothar can correct me on this, but we teach that it, it all comes down to a lot of the the pronoun choices that are. Used. So mm-hmm. if you see readings that involve with I and and me and stuff like that, those are first person uh narrations of such. Right. If you see um So the whole captain's log would be all in first person uh, Mm -hmm. uh, from Captain Kirk. Uh, And if you see he and she and they and stuff like that, that's all third person. But if you see you, um, then the author is speaking directly to that. And I I explained that there isn't a lot of uh, stories that use second person. In fact, most of the stuff you'll find is sort of like nonfiction handyman books. First, you grab the wrench. Then you hold the pipes, okay. mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> that kind yeah. of thing, right? Just straightforward trying to t- teach somebody how to do something. So when it's done in fiction, cleverly, <coughs> I take note myself.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's something to where it it obviously breaks the fourth wall. Um, mm-hmm. But if done right, it, incl- it, it it's less about breaking the fourth wall and more about expanding the story to include the recipient of the message. Right. If you want to think about okay. it that way. And um, the um where it gets a little tricky, and I guess, you know, this is where people can debate this, and I really don't have time for that sort of debate. But if you have <laughs> – there's a, a lot of stories in, like, some of the pulp era where it's second person and that it's always talking directly at you, but then you realize that actually the person's been talking to another character. Oh. And all you've been doing huh. is watching a dialogue, but you didn't necessarily r- realize there was a another person hearing this, in which case what you really have been getting is – Dialogue. Yeah, well, definitely. And, and in
3: that case, when I think about it in those terms, which I hadn't, uh, now that I think about it, I really like the fact that uh, they used that second-person narration because I really felt, uh, without even thinking about this, that I was being drawn into the story in terms of um, you know Red Mesa and the, the, whole, the whole setting of the story and the description of Wild Jack Rhett. Uh, when he's described, and I really felt like I was, I was pulled into the story and, and, part of it. So, uh, I think that's a really positive thing. And like you said, if you can do it well,
1: it's certainly worth doing. I'll bet you, you guys utilize it really well on stage sometimes too. Oh, sure. Yeah. When you, when
3: you, I mean, you have to connect with the audience in some way. Um, and, and so you, you do that. There's so many techniques to, uh, to do that. And, and those are things that we certainly practice. There's no question. It's connecting with the audience because it's, you know, it's all semiotics and they connect back with you. Right. Um, yep. You know, so it's, it's very interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. I hadn't thought of that.
2: And, you know, so we've got this already, we have this mythic structure. We've got it. We know where it is historically. We're talking directly to the audience and trying to involve them in it, which is a, you know, a slightly, at least it, it, it harkens back to an oral tradition, um, as if we're mm-hmm. being told a story that we're getting to come in on. And then we've got our sort of archetypal characters. So we've got, um, you know, beginning with the priest. You know, we've got that. You can almost like see him in his Western, you know, almost Methodist garb or whatever. Um, sure. We've got uh, the town council led by Mayor Peter Wayne. And we've got the, uh, the Weasley saloon person of Bo Helen. What a, <laughs> what a weird name that is, right? That's <laughs> what I thought. too. Mm-hmm. What a strange name. You know, we've got the, uh, the marshal, uh, what, Matt Travener, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, fiance to the, uh, to the daughter of the mayor. And, uh, and then we've got Jack Rett, who's coming in to right. stop Todd Mallon, the main villain. So, what did you guys think about the, the structure of the story, the, the way it played out, um, what that might have larger implications of, but also just, uh, you know, what, what made it such a cool story?
3: I really liked the structure of the story and I, I liked the characters. I especially was drawn to the character of Matt Travener. Yeah. Um, because, you know, he was representing something, um, something moral, I thought. And, you know, he wanted to give Rhett his space when Rhett came in as the sheriff. Uh, and he did that and then but he but he's also a strong character in that he stands up to Rhett finally and says, No, I'm you know, I'm gonna go get him. Uh you had your chance and now it's my I'm gonna go get him. Um and, and I just I like that character and I really liked that voice actor um who did it. Uh and uh, I thought he did a, a fabulous job.
2: Yeah, Lawrence I'm Dobkin was name. the uh, Lawrence Dobkin. Lawrence I think Dobkin. was his name. Yep.
3: Yeah. And um, I thought he did a fabulous job with the voice acting, and I also liked the. I liked that they were bringing in kind of the, the trope or the archetype of in in the western of, the new versus the old. In other words, civilization in quotation marks infringing on the old west. Yeah, and change. So in that one little scene where. Uh, she wants Matt to kiss her in front of her father, the mayor. You know, he's, he feels uncomfortable doing that. And, and, uh, you know, the mayor says something about change and and she says, well, the war changed us all. And, and, um, and I think that's so true throughout our history that war changes kind of the cultural part of, of the society, whether it's one of the world wars where people who, Always lived within ten miles of where they were born. All of a sudden, they're in Europe or they're someplace else, you know, and they realize it's a whole big world. So war it brings, I think, a sea change in so many cultural ways. Absolutely, and, and I think they were exploring that uh, as well in this. So I really enjoyed that. It, was, I thought, it was layered. It wasn't just a good story, although it was a good story. I thought it was more than that, and I thought they were trying to get at more than that.
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting cuz you were saying that Gertrude Stein was a a big fan of Haycox. Yep. And and if that's the case, I mean, Stein and Hemingway and Fitzgerald, they're all part of the lost generation that basically, right. you know, like it's a reaction to what happened to World War 1, yep. right? Mm-hmm. So I wonder if there's there is that, you know, using that that kind of um aesthetic, I don't want to well, say aesthetic, that kind of influence. Haycox Hay to-
2: actually served during World War I, so he would have had that go. as part of his, um, he also uh, he enlisted in the United States Army in 1915 and was stationed along the Mexican border, and then uh, mm-hmm. during World War I he was in Europe. So he had you yeah, know, okay. quite a bit of that background and saw, you know, he was more than just a writer talking about concepts, he had lived a lot of those things.
1: That's
2: amazing. And so I, that's, I, so I really like the what, what you were talking about, Jeff, about uh, Travener and uh, Rhett, Is that one of the things I liked? Is that they had a very respectful relationship, even though there was Mm -hmm. tension. Like you could tell they were both, they both knew each other, were, you know, the same type of person in different ways. And different roles. Yes. And I like that because we have, again, that conflict. Like, you know, Jeff, you were mentioning we've got the uh, civilization versus the wilderness, we've got the chaos Mm -hmm. of the wilderness that the order of the West is trying to sort of reestablish mythically and we've also got the chaos of war and having to reestablish that so we've got little fractals going Mm -hmm. on of this idea of trying to reimpose order onto chaos and we've got matt travener and jack rett being two necessary elements of that in this particular liminal state between the two states working together although there's a little bit of conflict they effectively work together and in the ending we see you know the the archetype of the, the wild killer giving way to maybe the more, you know, the more long-term lawman who will be part of the community and, you know, be tamed by the, by the feminine and all of that, you know, mythic garbage.
3: Sure. Because Rhett talks about, you know, knowing when it's his time, a man has to know when it's his time. Yep. And, you know, it seems like at this point, that the time for that kind of, you know, town tamer type of character uh, is it's it's coming it's it's ending. Yep. Um yep. And, and he's and, an old man and, at thirty eight, you know, so yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this yeah, th- and these well, kind I, I of stories what lifespan was <laughs> Yeah. These kind of stories, I mean you see them echoed all through Westerns. Like I thought specifically of the mountain men stories where you have these guys who come down from the mountain and represent an entirely different lifestyle that is like falling away with towards the civilization, the town that's coming up. So, you know, they're gone most of the year, uh, trapping and stuff like that, and bringing back furs and just trying to eke out a living and staying away from all kinds of civilization. And eventually they're not even needed anymore and they become even more, you know, sort of, more legend than anything else right yeah so you get this kind of thing with the you know the the professional killer gunslinger stuff Mm -hmm. too where they're, they're 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 no longer needed in a society that feels um that that romanticizes them but on the same level is uncomfortable with what they represent
3: yeah sure there's there's no question and i think you get this idea of the you know the modern civilization encroaching on the the old civilization and you know you see it in, in so much in and paw films right you know whether right. it's the wild bunch and you've got the automobile and they talk about a, the plane coming in or it's in ride the high country where you're talking about changes in morals between the two main characters um and of course Peckinpah paw lived that so you talk about an author whose life experience um transcends into his work you know Peck and Pa had that their family had a farm and then uh, it was sold out from under them and he never was able to get back to that life that he loved uh, mm. and so th- this whole this whole idea of you know whether it's whether it's fencing in the range in those kinds of stories in westerns um, mm-hmm. you know it's it's civilization it's that Eastern quote unquote you know person coming in. And everything's taking, uh, you know, the the West is diminishing, and and the way of life is is ending, and all of that, which I find very, very compelling.
2: Yeah, and we have a um a very interesting, I think, juxtaposition between cynicism and romanticism, and I think the two are actually incredibly tied mm-hmm. together in, if not exclusively, an American way, at least in this uh, expression, a specifically American way. Or maybe New World Way, Jack. Maybe when we get to the Canadian versions of westerns, we'll see the parallels or, or contrast. But we have a, mm-hmm. a certain, you know, rom- romanticism of this killer that you know everybody's a little afraid of, right? Nobody really wants right. him there, but they but they do need him there, and we see that in the the wonderful scene where he walks in slowly into the uh, into the town committee meeting, and we just hear his spurs and his, oh, you know, that great. was beautifully yeah. done.
1: Yeah. But oh. we've got this guy
2: who, you know, we see. Well, we see this even reiterated in other things with uh, Travener before Rhett shows up, where he goes, "It's a bloody way to peace, Mary." And yes, I love that. Line. A, that brings up Great that line. brings up a you know a more philosophical question, which is, is there any other way to peace than than bloodshed? And that's you know n- not to derail the conversation, but that's a larger conversation of can mm-hmm. you ever do that without conflict? When there's conflict, does it need to erupt and get resolved and move over, or can you really do it? Are you just you know, putting a finger in the dike and waiting for it to explode at some point. So we've got that sort of cynicism going on. We've also got all the different lines that Rhett makes throughout of, you know, um, uh, I never give a man a fair chance at me, mm-hmm. never buck a man who spent his life learning to kill son, uh, all of that sort of stuff going on. And even the thing of like, you know, the game never changes. You know, where he's talking about the corruption that's going on with the saloon owner, and you know, Bo Helen and, and Malin and all that. And where I find this to be ultimately romantic and still cynical at the end, in that beautifully tragic Western way, is that Mm -hmm. at the end of the story we have, you know, Rhett dying. We have Travener and Mary are going to get married. You know, Mallon is dead. Bo Helen is dead. But the game never changes. There's going to be another Mallon. There's going to be another Bo Helen. There's going to be someone trying to game the bureaucracy, and the bureaucracies are going to get bigger. There's not going to be any space for the Jack Retts to come back and fix the chaos again. We're not going to be able to invoke that archetype because now we're not going to allow him. And so who's going to take over all of the, you know, you know, lifelong politicians and corporate shucksters mm-hmm. that have now become the megacores. and look at the world we're living in now.
3: I, I had the same feeling when, when Bo Helen was talking to, you know, to Rett, and he was, you know, talking about economics versus, you know, safety or however you want to word that and i was saying boy that is so um so how it is today yeah in terms of economics running everything and, oh, and but that economic you know, concern need, was safety, brilliant we don't need this we need
2: money coming into the yep.
3: town but um, that,
2: that's a valid concern that's survival so i thought that was a brilliant addition because yeah it isn't an easy answer you know maybe there's a better mm-hmm. way to go about it than bo helen's way but his concerns are right. not unreasonable in that you know and especially, like, you know, there is no Red Mesa now. If there was one there, it's not there now, so maybe it drew, dried up and blew away in the wind.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, there were two things that struck me about that. and I, One thing is a larger conversation, too, about the romance, because it strikes me as there is an American romance in the same way as there was the Arthurian chiva- chivalric romance kind of story. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it'd be it, it would do it would do us well at some point to maybe find the commonalities and and suggest that maybe this these kind of romances are are cultural in in their clothing, but they they show up in various different places around the world, and there's just these these slight differences that come that come within, and and maybe they have a lot to do with the wild the wildness that they're around that this because. They are sort of the solo Avenger or the or the solo hero in a, in a wild place, bringing um, uh, rule and such to that. And and I think again, it's funny because you start off old west stories with those kind of romances, and as time goes by, the the sadness of the romance is that they're no longer needed. But then my second thought was, like you said. Are they ever no longer needed? Because uh wasn't it Jefferson who wrote in a letter to somebody about the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with mm-hmm. the blood of patriots and tyrants? And and that of that's used, of course, by all all sorts of people on on the far uh sides, either right or left, to sort of try to uh spur people into action about things that they don't think are right. But I, I think there's there's a truth that um Things can go on in a society where people get so comfortable, then they see something bad happen, and then they're afraid to sort of talk to somebody about it, and then they don't stand up, and they don't stand up, and the next thing you know, it requires a massive overhaul of everything, which includes violence and the whole bit. So, I mean, is, is Rhett really, you know, you know, he's old at 30, was it, 38? 38, 38. 38. Forget, and at 38, the peak of yeah. his reputation. At the peak mm-hmm. of his reputation, but are we happy that they will they ever leave? Will they be sort of like that Arthurian at one point when we're most needed again Th- these people will arise and 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 operate in such a way as to return things back into fashion into balance? Maybe you need that balance right you, you can't be without it yeah and so to
2: make a distinction for um audience members that might you know think we're conflating uh real world problems with real world Mm. solutions um we're we're talking about literary motifs here like the concept of chivalry and the is specifically literary there's there's whole you know Mm. academics that have done the history of the concept of chivalry that did not exist in reality it was specifically for the romances and it was to metaphorically talk about concerns and that's what we're talking about here we're not actually advocating for people Gosh, like jack no. rett to do vigilante justice oh, we're no. talking Definitely about not. what pops up from the <laughs> cultural subconscious as we're going through all this stuff in our fiction to help us deal with it and get to the next side but right. one of the problems with um a uh, certain thought today about this is that this concept this this discussion we're having seems very nihilistic of that oh we're always going to be doing this but you look at it historically and there is no social evolution. We don't, we keep doing the same stuff. We keep repeating the same types of problems over and over. And we may, there might be a possibility that we may never learn because that's just essentially who we are. And if that's the case, then we need to figure out how do we, how do we maximize our role in that? Um, and if it's not the case, then we need better arguments than we've had because it doesn't seem to be uh, fixing anything.
3: That's true. And, and, um, I like what you said about the romances, Jack, because I, I felt the same way in terms of the Arthurian romances and our own Western mythos romances. Um, in the classic literary term, once again of the the term romance. Um, so I I think that it's it's important that we have that discussion, and and I think it's going to be a great discussion. We we don't have to have it now, but um, farther on in our Western series here, I think that that's a huge,
2: huge part of the discussion. Yeah. And I mean, there's so many things about the Western time period that from a historical point of view are really horrible. I mean, when we get into some of the other ones, we'll talk about, you know, the way the Native Americans retri- retreated, oh, sure. all of that sort of stuff. But there's a difference between acknowledging the reality of the history and throwing out the myth because the myth is what gives meaning. And, uh, you know, we've talked about this before and we'll maybe see it a little bit here because it's it's kind of a, a similar sort of romantic uh, dying of when we do away with the myth and meaning, then what's the point? So finding that balance right. between acknowledging what the historical reality is and also being able to recognize this is our, um, you know, as part of the new world, this is our mythology. And right. mythology should give us a a map to help navigate a really complex territory, which is how the hell do we live?
1: Yeah. I And and to answer your question about do we do, are we just constantly repeating things? that That in itself is sort of like, the 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 very crux of um, the arguments uh, between civilization and ancient cultures, where uh, Celtic and I'm sure you you could name off a bunch of others would say, oh no no these 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 things have been and they shall always be and they you know and so you see those kinds of writings even in things like Alan Garner I remember reading a book oh, yeah. of his and he's you can see uh, yeah he's great that way and I love that kind of stuff. Um, whereas civilization is always looking towards progress and saying we are making steps forward, and so the um, the the positive person, the the person who feels like things might be getting better in the world, uh, might I would say that there's a possibility we're a funnel where we're kind of concentric circles, but moving, uh, we're we're learning in certain cases. Somebody, you know, some historian used to say like history you know history repeats itself but then others say well no it just rings similarly as time goes yeah, by. yeah i think Mar- mark twain it's had the great
2: not- quote of uh, history doesn't repeat but it rhymes
1: that's yes, it it did, rhymes yeah. that's right perfect yeah. yeah for that reason and i and i think you know it's it's that old it's that old joke that uh you know the minister who says the same comes in does this barn burner sermon and people love it next week it comes back and says, does the exact same sermon. And people are embarrassed, so they don't say anything. And then, the you know, the third week, he does the same sermon, and somebody comes up to him and says, a couple of elders come up and goes like, uh, you know, some of the things you were saying this week were a little similar to what you were saying the week before and the week before. And the minister says, uh, well, I'm glad you noticed. I'm going to keep di- giving the same sermon until you guys start applying it. So... <laughs> <laughs> so- <laughs> Maybe that's the case, is that we... We constantly forget these important messages. I mean, uh, Howard Robert E. Howard used to argue this too, right? He would argue oh, yeah. that you know we are constantly in in uh, a struggle between the weak and the strong, and pe- and mm. organism. You know, if you are more barbaric, you're more likely to rise. If you're more civilized, you're more likely to fall.
2: Yeah. Well, it you know it. There's a couple things. There's one. There's the, the sort of. uh you know, snarky saying, but it's true to a certain degree, which is that um, bad times make strong people. Strong people make good times. Good times make weak people. Weak people make bad times, and the cycle continues. Um, right. Hmm. You know, but the the sort of uh, there's another um, and for people who are interested in this type of you know deeper analysis, there's a great book by the um, Romanian uh, mythologist uh, Mircea Eliade called "The Myth of the Eternal Return." And one of his big arguments is the difference between historic and mythic time and the cultures that either have both because every culture recognizes the difference between what happened in our history and also how, do, how are their cycles. And how do we maximize mm-hmm. ourselves in the cycles to some of the cultures and we're in one right now that only has a linear time of, histor- of history and we've even put our mythology into that. So there's a beginning, a middle, and an end and we're going towards the end and the end's going to be the end. and. When you have that cyclical aspect, which even some you know, urban civilizations did, you can renew yourself. Every time there's spring, you do new spring rites. But the, the deeper philosophical and psychological aspect of that is to sort of forgive yourself and the, and the society you're living in and say, we're starting fresh. We got a new mm. beginning. And that can be very powerful. I mean, that's one of those things that, you know, anybody going through various types of therapy after a trauma is to say, this isn't how it has to end. You can start again. Mm. And when we live in a historical thing where it's like, you can never escape the past and you're going to some sort of eschatological horrible ending, you suddenly feel like, what's the point? And maybe that's one of the things that, you know, when you're living in the wilderness and outside of that civilization in that barbaric way, it's all about you and the people around you and what you can, what you all do. And then it's about responsibility for your own rebirth, for your own you know, forgiveness of yourself and other people and starting anew and saying, hey, we, we don't want to end with, let's put this behind us and move on. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that this type of romantic tale tells us also is about personal responsibility and how do we take charge of it.
1: Stunningly, maybe Rhett, uh, the whole aspect of of his purpose there is in that cyclical, right? He's at the end. Yes. They talk about yes. that specifically. Mm-hmm. So the, the question is, if the wheel is turning, who's going to replace it?
2: And there's a number of mythological figures of, um, you know, various levels to where there is someone who is the closer of an age. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we see, you know, this most heroically in in Beowulf when at the end of Beowulf, when he kills the dragon, it's specifically stated that this is basically the ending of an age. And, you know, he kills the dragon. He also dies in the process. And that heroic era is gone. Um, Also, in Norse mythology, the character of Loki, even though he's less of a sympathetic character, his name literally means the closer. Oh. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's all sorts that. of false etymology, but in Icelandic, there's these things called kaupaloki, which are these charms that are called deal closers. So they're meant to basically close the deal when you're doing some sort of business negotiation. Yeah, he was closing the age. He saw the corruption that was going on from his point of view and started the last war that was going to, you know, end everything. But then again, at the end of that, there's another rebirth. The gods come back again. The cycles begin again. Uh,
1: just another thing on the, the town folk, and I'm I'm always amazed at how you can create such a really big um environment, uh a, a cast of characters in an in a radio drama done by Westerns. Like I mean, when we saw it last time when we were looking at Gunsmoke, the, the thing about Gunsmoke is you have a whole series to build some characters and, and drop them off. You know, Chester may not be there for some of the episodes and Kitty mm-hmm. may be there there and not for episodes, but you know that they're hanging around and stuff like that. And here in in you know, Wild Jack Rhett, you've got uh, like you you mentioned you know you've got the priest, you've got the town council, you've got all these various different uh, elements of the town. You to got Samus, the town drunk. Uh, yes, 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 the town drunk, and exactly to build the 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 environment or the atmosphere of the town, and to give to to give that kind of depth for for people to feel like it's not just you know. Uh, a stage prop that's put up
2: and used for perfect narrative effect when Samus downs his beer really quickly because he realizes, oh, crap, mm-hmm. I want to get out of here. Yep. This is too tense. It was a brilliant <laughs> bit of storytelling.
3: For yeah, sure. you can hear him drinking it and he's out of <laughs> there. Glug, glug,
2: glug, and such a such good talk production. you bit
3: about the
1: sound effects and oh, such? I, like I, the production? I had
2: to listen to the saloon doors a number of times. The the audio geek in me was just like, oh, that's be- beautiful. I love that sound. So <laughs> much was so good. The coin on the bar when when you know, when I think Samus pays for his, uh, for his beer, there's a coin that clinks on the bar and it's just gorgeous.
3: <laughs> oh, beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful soundscape. Yeah, it's, it's well done. And we talked about those footsteps, but I, you know, when Rhett enters, and you could just see him there. You can feel him. And I think what makes that so uh, poignant, so powerful is the silence that's there. Yes. Right. Everything yes. just goes silent. And you hear the footsteps and then it's just silence. Yeah, you can you feel the, the tension through the again. through the audio. Oh god, yeah. It just uh, fabulous, fabulous work.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: just just amazing. Yeah. And I love the uh, um I, I, I love that Rhett, you know, there's certain things that he did that was just showing what type of strange force they had brought into their town with you know, one I thought it was cool, where he's like able to recognize the rifle from the from the way that it sounded. You know, that, that's a mm-hmm. that's a good uh you know Sherlock Holmes Batman moment, right? You know, and right. um, you know, and then after he lets the the gambler get shot by the you know by the fur trapper or whatever, and yep. he's like, which is the most useful citizen? What a cold, but ultimately, like again, towards that same thing of like we're trying to build a better world, and he's going to mm-hmm. do the hard the hard choices that Travener doesn't have to, that Travener would even think of doing, and is probably horrified still. You know, it, it what, you know, Rhett did, but to Rhett, it was like, this was a no brainer. It was going to happen anyway. And this way I could at least contain the chaos because if it was going to get out of control, I could stop it, you know, kind of like setting a, uh, a controlled fire on the side of the hill that the, you know, the fire department's going to, you know, have to burn down before it, you know, goes up on its own and actually causes damage.
3: So true. And, And it's interesting what you said earlier, Lothar, about the cynicism uh, what's the first thing I think he says, Rhett says when he meets um, the deputy marshal is, you know, you're young. Yeah, exactly. Right. And and then he goes on to say things like, you know, um, um, about not trusting people and I'm just going to be by myself and, and uh, I'm not going to rely on anyone because people are
2: inherently not good. Yeah. I always expect the worst of men and I'm seldom disappointed. Exactly. Yeah, you yep. know,
3: and and it's so it's you know it's that that kind of independent, self sufficient American, you know, construct
2: of this guy who's going to not rely on anyone but himself. And John Denner, the actor, he did some really subtle things near the end that I thought was beautiful. When he's talking to a uh, to Mary, and when he says goodbye, Miss mm-hmm. Wayne, there's a gentleness to his voice that we hadn't heard yet. And then right before, you know, when Mary calls, uh, you know, Travener away and, and, um, you know, Rhett calls him back where he says, wait, Travener, he quivered. There's a little quaver in his voice. Hmm. Listen to it again. It's brilliant. It's very, very subtle, but it's like he knows he's ending and he's trying to pull this off and he's doing something subtle, which is probably not his forte. Right. And it's just this like little tiny weakness. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. He's very gracious when he talks to Mary.
3: He's. When he accepts the wedding invitation. Yeah. Uh, you, you, that's so you see that other side of him. And of course, I mean, he does something noble, right? When he sends Travener away. And I mean, he saves his life. And that's, you know, when it's funny because when, in the end, when Travener says, well, that's a sort of
2: kindness, isn't it? His last line is that's sort of a greatness, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And that, that really is, especially in the old use of the word great which is someone who you know when people talk about the great leaders of history it doesn't mean that they were good guys it meant they did things right. that were impactful that changed okay. the world and yeah in this way he did change all of their world sure
3: and, and I love and I love the fact that they just throw in the it, of the people that Rhett kills in the end he he takes out Bo Helen for sure oh yeah you know, sure. And, yep. and I think that's that's satisfying to an audience because he's such a I know, to me, plus the, the actor, the way he played the voice was, it was mm. so kind of lascivious. I, I you know, it was, it, there was something there. Um, you know, and so I, I love the fact that they included the scumbag. Fact that yeah. That yeah. They took <laughs> He had Hellen a bit out. of a nasally yeah.
2: voice. I'm not familiar with Lou Krugman's yeah. uh, name, but that's the actor who played Bo Helen as Lou Krugman. And, I'd like to hear other things, because there was almost like a little, like, I'm trying to almost, like, put it in my nasally voice. It was it was so yeah. Weasley, and I'm wondering if he did that on purpose, right. or if that's just his natural voice, or what.
1: Yeah. Did you any, did you want to mention anything, because from the writer's perspective about John Meston, like, it's just amazing when you put, you know, mentioned beforehand that he's he's been in, John Meston has done so many different adaptations. Oh, yeah. It's amazing to have a great writer like John Meston also writing with a great, you know, a source material.
2: Yeah. And a great director in Norm MacDonald. I mean, it was a perfect yeah. confluence of Norm MacDonald for sure. Yeah. Uh,
1: you know, so it, what I, I didn't realize this too. I was looking up uh, a while ago and um, I didn't realize that the 92 CBS television Gunsmoke to the Last Man is dedicated.
2: Oh, that's awesome. Really?
1: So that's really kite. And also, a lot of his scripts mentions uh, Pueblo, which is a a, a particular, his birthplace. And so he, oh. uh, he throws it in that many of his characters came from their heading. So it's, it's neat when, for me, it's neat when a, a writer can throw a little bit of their own personality into it somewhere, somewhere down the line, especially after so many. Yep. Exactly.
3: Hey, I have a question that maybe you guys can answer that and its, It has to do with Todd Mellon as the, um, as a villain, but we never, he never speaks and we never really see him. Yep. Uh, and, and somewhere I looked I tried to look it up and somewhere I, I I thought I'd heard a term for a character like that, that you never see them. They're just talked about, you know, like Godot and waiting for Godot or something like that. It's, Hmm. um, but I, I didn't, maybe I'm just dreaming, but, um. I was right. looking it up. I was trying to research it because, you know, we do never see him. He never speaks. And he's talked about, yeah. Um,
1: but uh, we I'm, never. No, There, I'm not there familiar is a term, term for that. There is a term for it, and I can't remember it either. Because I remember them mentioning it when they were talking about Norm's wife from Cheers. Oh, uh, because <laughs> right. she never shows up, right? right? And but she's mentioned all the time. So there's a lot of those kind of characters. Where, you know, they, you never see them, but everybody in, in the world knows. Now, we, actually, we actually
2: do see Malin, we just don't hear him. So, he does show True. up and he dies. Right. So, he is yeah. on screen, but he's, you know, but I'm not sure if that would make the, uh, I'm not familiar with the term, so I'm not sure how it's defined.
1: <laughs> Audio screen. Yeah, I'm not either. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, now I have to check that. In.
2: But I think that brings up an interesting point in that who's the real villain here? Is it Malin who's been killing everybody, or is it Bo Helen who's been allowing him to do this? Who's been giving him the mechanism to do all this stuff? It's really like Malin could be any ambitious person, but without a Bo Helen, it's not going to work.
3: Right. My answer yeah. to that is Bo Helen all the way. That's I wrote that down. I wanted to bring that up because to me, Bo Helen was the villain, in the the real villain, yeah. the whole thing. And I, I think that's why uh, Rhett takes him out in the end.
1: Yeah, he's not an innocent bystander by any means.
2: No, he's the one that's been doing all this, and it's you know because of him yeah. that the fur trader died and you know got you know dry mm-hmm. gulched and all that. So,
3: and the people know it too. The mayor knows it. You know when they have the vote, the right. five to one vote, the mayor's yeah. not surprised, right? Yep. Yeah, I know right. Bo Helen. I know that's how you were going to vote, but so yeah, I, I felt like it was Bo Helen. That's why I asked the question because, like I say with with Melon, you never. You're right, he does show up, but we
1: never hear him and, and yeah, he's uh, so. almost
2: incidental, you know, yeah,
1: yeah, it's almost like you the know. shadow side of things though, too, when you think about it like the shadow of what we've been talking oh, about oh, absolutely American yep. romance, right, so you've got the 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 sheriff who represents the law and order and civilization and bringing stuff together, and then you've got Helen who represents the same kind of sneaky manipulation, but but sneaky manipulation, you know what I mean on the other side. Mm-hmm. Of of civilization, it's kind of like uh, if you, um, th- it's it reminds me of Sweringen from Deadwood, who if he was playing Dungeons and Dragons would be lawful evil, you know, <laughs> where he he helps run the town, but only so that he can pick people's pockets more easily. That's why he likes the laws the way they are. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, that's, yep. so he tries to situate situate himself in a way that he will, you know, enrich himself because in too much chaos. Well then everybody loses out.
2: Right? Yeah, no <laughs> so, I I I like that idea of the shadow cuz it it does sort of, you know, not quite as literally but it brings up almost like a Ursula Le, Le Guin um wizard of Earth sea sort of concept of, you know, both are necessary. Both are going to be there. That yep. that shadow side and the light side are going to be there. And um Yep. Yeah, you know, that's another
1: Shout out to Weird Studies. <laughs> I just too. was listening to that just a couple of days ago myself. Oh, I, they, I haven't, haven't heard, I haven't heard the
2: it. new episode yet, but I did see that it was yeah. there, so yeah. Yeah. But yeah, and it brings up another interesting question, which is, you know, for everybody to wrestle with, there's no clear answer of, is it better to have situations or a world where you have those extremes in conflict or a watered down middle ground where they don't manifest, but all those problems are still there, but maybe you can't see them as clearly.
1: Yeah, it, I, I think obviously, um, and this is where, you know, I'm, I'm always all of the above with life. I'm sort of the, very much the middle road because I can see. You know, the the problem with evil is that it eats itself. It's it chaotic, it's energy, it's passion, it's all those kind of that people talk about. I'm just talking about classical elements of evil, right? And the problem of good, and I, when I use evil and good, I'm talking about um, it, it, how we've identified them more as good, the good being the civilized, if that's what you're looking at in a Western kind of mm-hmm. thing and the evil being like the people who come in and make all the rules as they go along, the guns, the gunsmiths or the gun shooter, uh, the shooters, uh, the fighters. Um, but if the problem with that, you know, so the gunfighters come in and they can, and they kill each other off and, and, you know, they leave a massive uh, a wake of misery and stuff that you have to clean up and how do you start over and all that kind of stuff. That's the danger of having too much of that chaos. Whereas the order, and we'll get rid of the good and evil, but talk about order, but traditionally they'd be good and evil in in the Western side of things. Um, Too much order becomes calcified, and it slowly kills everything, right? So you have to constantly be refreshing for a new society what needs to happen, and that's why you need to have that chaos come in and shake stuff up in one way or another. So again, back to the whole: Who's going to be the next threat to help out? Because at some point, you can't just let things keep going on and on and on the way they are, because eventually it it will. You will have, um, you know, somebody else who will pop up. It'll be that uh, that 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 other villain that will that will be running the town separate, uh, secretly, utilizing all the rules that have been slowly put in place to to harm.
2: And again, in the, you know, literary traditions that, you know, try and reflect upon our historical uh, situations that we're in, we see this repeated, um, you know, a good, you know, 30, 40 years later in um, uh, the prohibition era where we've got the organized uh, rum runners and people like Al Capone. And then we've got the untouchables right, and we've got that same right. sort of person. And then that could, you know, we could keep going through that. And then, you know, we've got all the different things going on in the 70s and 80s with the various types of uh, uh Dirty Harry or, um, uh, what's a death wish with Charles Bronson and, sure. you know, and even the Rambo movies, it's like, we're still telling the same sorts of tales about, mm-hmm. you know, when we're frustrated and we even see all in the early comic strips, you know, or the comic books before, before world war two turned all of the superheroes or mystery men of the, of the earlier age into, uh, patriotic icons. They were, mm-hmm. they were rebellious. They were destroying the status quo. These are the people going, the cops are inefficient. Everything's turning yeah. to crap. Nobody has any food or money or jobs, and we need someone to put on a mask and fix things.
1: That's right. That's right. The spider and stuff like that, you know, sure. and, and, yeah. and early versions of the shadow and stuff like that. Those, All those sort of pulpy characters were there to um, restore order that had gotten from a, a society that had no longer cared about what people we're doing and you see that a little bit too in westerns with the gilded age concept right where you have these you know uh railroad magnets who sure. own everything you know that kind of stuff yeah, yeah.
3: And, and i think you also get into um in kind of a postmodern way um you know the whole anti-hero thing mm-hmm. you know as as we get into the because earlier on you have the john wayne randolph scott type of Westerns where you have the honorable character and he's doing this. And then you get into like the Sergio Leone um, spaghetti Westerns in, in the mid right. to late 60s, right? Um, which you have the antihero, you have the Clint Eastwood character. Right. He's coming in. His main thing is to get more gold. Right. Um, and, and I remember reading an anecdote about John Wayne who didn't care for Clint Eastwood Westerns. Because he said, you know, that S O B would shoot somebody in the back. Yep. you know, and and so you know, you get that that whole idea. And I love I love those spaghetti westerns. And of course, Fistful of Dollars is a direct, yep. <laughs> in some ways, shot by shot recreation of Yojimbo, right yep. by by uh, Kurosawa. Yeah, um, and and so we can you know you get into that too, that Ronin tradition of the samurai or. Or that kind of a thing, that roving hero that we talked about before, um, but I think you do get the anti-hero who comes in and, and um, you know as well. So it's it's a, such an interesting, loaded
1: genre. Like the samurai romances, that you, they're basically that, aren't they? You know what I mean? It's the same kind of thing. You have a person with a definitive code of conduct that is at odds with the world around. Them but is somehow respected by pretty much everybody, including sometimes the villains, you know, often the villains respect that person for their code of conduct. They have to kill. Those are, those are elements worth looking into. Yeah,
3: it is. It just, just as a funny aside, I, I read a quote from, uh, Kurosawa when, when Leone made fistful of dollars. And he, he said to, uh, Leone, he said, I loved your movie. Um, As a matter of fact, it's my movie. (laughs) And uh, then, of course, he sued him and got all kinds of money. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because it is. It's almost a shot by shot recreation in some ways. As a matter of fact, somebody made a film where they put both films on a split screen. Wow, <laughs> and you can watch both of them at the same time. That's and incredible. And it's just there's so many it's just and and Leone just said, "Well, I really liked your film."
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's
3: right. You know, and
1: I liked it so much I made it again. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. <laughs> and of I course Peck,
3: how- Peck Peck and paw makes it in some ways with um mm-hmm. Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia.
2: Mm. Mm-hmm. Right.
3: Uh it's a very similar plot. It's that that whole thing and and um there's also a Bruce Willis film, I think, with a very similar type of uh, of plot line. Which and it's all it's all derivative of of Yojimbo. Know, doesn't make it, not, you know. It's still they're still fine films. Um, yes, but well, and you know, Kurosawa is getting it from, from his own folklore and college. his own
2: legends. It's what Kurosawa is getting it from his own culture's folklore and legends. So you know, it's like this oh, is no all coming out of that. the. You know, the collective unconscious of, of any culture that has a heroic tradition of some type.
1: People argue mm-hmm. that Tarantino steals and, and oh, he's the no first question. one to say he does. But I think the difference is, is that he good, good directors and writers and stuff like that steal elements to create something new. Exactly. You know what I mean? Uh, Or, or, you know, or or steal, you know, even moods or tones to create something new and apply them and not just run off copies, you know, in the same way. So,
3: yeah. And in all fairness, if you watch Leone's later films, whether it's for a few dollars more and then, of course, Good, the Bad and the Ugly, Once Upon a Time in the West, he's he's doing that. You know, he kind of says, okay, I I get it. And he's taking those – those kinds of things from other places but he's making it his own and uh, i think i think that's important and you know artists do that all the time you you build you can build off of something that has come before but you've got to put your own you know self into it
2: well i think the people i mean i understand kurosawa's point of view because there's a there's a difference between pastiche and being inspired by and um you know, plagiarism, but, um, you know, I I think most people who have a problem with originality or these things are the people that aren't necessarily creators themselves because every artist, you know, goes through the stage of who made me want to do this type of art and you kind of copy what made what made you fall in love with it. And if you're honest, mm-hmm. that develops into your own voice, but you look at the early stuff and, and you know, it's someone saying, Oh God, as a guitarist. I'm so influenced by Jimmy, Pl- Jimmy page or, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And you know, then you get your own, your own style and, and everybody goes through that. So I think the only people to wear this as a surprise is maybe people to where they don't understand that process and think, you know, a good is always unique. And you, you just end yes. up that way, like hatched out of a box. Yeah.
3: Right, and and I'll just I'll give you a warning because here comes the Shakespeare reference of the day. Um, (laughs) Is that we need a Shakespeare uh, alert to go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) You need it because I always have to bring it up. You know, I love it. I um, love it. But uh, you know, I don't think any of Shakespeare's plays were original in the sense that he got the idea from someplace else. So Romeo and Juliet was a a poem, and Othello was a story, and then he takes it and makes it into something. That's based on that, but goes into you know far bigger scope and, and whatever. So so that you know Shakespeare's mining for his stories um, in in places, and not copying, but taking it to a new place. But right. certainly the kernel
2: of the idea. The whole concept of originality is very very new historic, where right. originality is the you know the pinnacle of of artistic creation. That that's something that's only a few hundred years old uh, as a you know, as a truism because everything before it was like people telling the same cultural stories over and over and that each storyteller would have their way of telling it. But you know, it's, it wasn't new. <laughs> Someone who might tell Correct. a completely original story, people would be going, what the hell are you telling? We don't care about this. We want to hear about, you know, this culture hero that we always want to hear the story of or whatever. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you have coming up for us next time, Jack?
1: I am still looking for what I want to, like, first of all, we talked about me doing, um, the six shooter and we talked about me doing, um, a, a, a Canadian Western. I'm still looking for the Canadian Western. So I think next time I'm going to hit with a six shooter and, and bring one of those episodes there. So cool. the six shooter with, with, uh, Jimmy Stewart, mm-hmm. one of my favorite, favorite actors of all time. Absolutely. And it's fascinating. Uh, the show that he did. So uh, look for that next month.
2: Cool. And I will bring a Fort Laramie at some point, which I talked about last time. But uh, this is kind of turning, you know, for the audience, this is turning into probably what's going to be a season of Westerns and us exploring that or we'll see where it goes. But um, Fort Laramie will come up at some point. But it was kind of more of a niche, you know, the, the Indian Wars, the forts and everything. We will address that. But I wanted to do something a little more archetypal this time around. So hence this episode.
1: Right on. Sounds Thanks great. for bringing it. It was so much fun. I had not heard this episode.
2: Neither had I until I started trying to look for stuff and I was so glad that this one came up. Right now. Me on. neither.
3: And I will tell the listeners we we last time uh where we talked about William Conrad so much when you look at the escape uh, he's in uh, quite a large number of them. Um
2: yep. oh yeah. William
3: Conrad is. I listened to a couple of them and why not listen to it? It was okay, but it was about uh, finding a yeti in the in the uh, <laughs> awesome. in the mountains. And, and it, but he was great in it as well. So, um, let go ahead and, and you know listen to those escape um, oh episodes yeah episodes because they're they're mostly wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right.
2: Well, adios, amigos.
3: Thanks so yes. much. So thank much you. fun. Yeah, thank you, Lothar. Thank you, Jack. Always a pleasure.
2: Right on. See you guys next time.
1: This has been an Electric Vicuna production.
5: Amigos!
8: Hey everyone, it's Mark from Leap Audio. I'm here to tell you about something really exciting. July 24 through 26 of 2020, halifax nova scotia we are gathering together in the world's first international modern audio drama convention and family reunion inspired in part by the living loving memory of our dear friend bill hallway we're bringing together writers producers actors and our fans for workshops seminars and even live performances so join us won't you Go to madcon.com, that's www.mad-con.com for more information. I hope to see you in Halifax in 2020.
4: The Mutual Audio Drama Network, where we listen and imagine together.